Welcome to the Space Policy Edition, another month, another episode. I am Casey Dreyer, the Chief of Space Policy here at the Planetary Society. And today I'm joined by my colleague, Jack Kirley, who is, among other things, the head of our Washington operations and government relations here at the Planetary Society as well. Hey, Jack. Hey, Casey. How are you doing? Doing good. Uh, uh, enjoying myself and looking forward to a whole new year of space policy episodes coming up after this one. Uh, this is the last of 2024. However, that does not matter because we have a slightly different take on the show today. Instead of having an external guest, we, Jack, you and I are going to read, I'd say, I was going to say a famous paper of space policy. I don't know if space policy uh, papers are tend to be famous, but an infamous one. <laughs> And it's going to be part of a, a series we do on the show for visiting or revisiting really influential and important pieces of space policy, uh, academic analysis and journal writing and articles and analysis. And this episode, we're going to be actually starting with a paper written by our board member, John Logston, who, who I think literally, would you say he literally founded the field of space history and policy? I would say that he wrote the book, but in fact, he probably wrote five. He actually, yeah, he wrote, <laughs> uh, we're going to be reading his paper called The Space Shuttle Program, A Policy Failure, question mark, including in the title, published in 1986. And I think, you know, a, a really important and insightful piece of commentary on how the difference evolves between the intent behind a program and the reality behind a program as epitomized by the space shuttle. And I think we'll revisit this question now 10 years after the space shuttle ended about whether it, it was a policy failure or not. So that paper, uh, we will link to it in the show notes online. You can read it yourself. It's only, I think, uh, 10 pages. Or you can read John's entire book on uh, the space shuttle decision, which is the Nixon, uh, his book on the Nixon space policy era, if you have a little bit more time. But before that, Jack, we have to pitch, this is a great time of year, to become a member of the Planetary Society. Which really you can is. do, which I, <laughs> which I hear uh, by good authority. You can join at planetary.org slash join. Uh, all sorts of levels of membership starting at four bucks a month. And by being a member of the Planetary Society, obviously you're, you're not just enabling this show to occur if you like space policy. You're enabling all of the great work that Jack is doing on behalf of our members in Washington, D.C., all of our educational work, our outreach, our you know work to get kids involved in space, and, of course, the amazing uh, education, excitement, and community building that we do online at the Planetary Society. Jack, do you have any? You're a member, right? I am a member. Card-carrying. <laughs> Both of us card-carrying members. Anything you'd like to add about why folks should join and become it and support truly the Planetary is. Society? The one way, the surefire way that you can have an impact on space exploration, on space science, and be part of this uh, future we all see for humanity in space. I'm sold. That sounds great to me. <laughs> Let, let's Four dollars a month. Four bucks a month. That's it's actually quite reasonable these days. Uh, so I hope you consider that if you, if you like the show, uh, if you want to support the work we're doing, or if you know someone who needs a good gift this year so they can become also, like us, mm -hmm. a card-carrying member of the Planetary Society. That's at planetary.org slash join. All right. Jack, let's talk about this paper, The Space Shuttle Program, A Policy Failure. 
released as a peer-reviewed article in Science in 1986 in May. This is not long after the Challenger disaster. So a very fresh and, and moment of reconsideration of the space shuttle program in what would be a very early part of its history. It would continue the space mm -hmm. shuttle program for another 25 years after this point. But Jack, let's. How should we approach this? Maybe we can outline John's argument here about what does this mean to be a policy failure. So, what does it start? You know, with what stands out to you? What what arguments does John make here about the space shuttle program? I mean, I think the core argument that John's making in this article is that the space shuttle was designed almost by committee to meet all of these exceptional anticipated needs that maybe were not substantiated by other policy decisions or requests of the scientific community or the human spaceflight community, but that met sort of in this at the crux of all these different uh, interests and tried to answer a question that didn't quite exist at that point. Right. The, right. They were creating, they were assembling a coalition of support by solving problems that didn't necessarily exist, but seemed right. nice to have. Right. So like they, they said, oh, the space shuttle, here's what it's going to do for you. It's going to lower the cost of spaceflight. That was the big one. It's yeah. going to address a bunch of national security needs uh, for the Department of Defense and the Air Force. Uh, you could launch it very quickly into space if you need to. You can scramble or you can snag uh, a malfunctioning satellite or an important national security asset, fix it and launch it, you know, bring it back into space. You can build a space station, which is what NASA would kind of mention on the sly. <laughs> Ultimately wanted to use it for, but didn't uh, lead with that, we'll say. Yeah, and I think John's point is that this, I think he, he summarizes it at the very end of the paper where he calls, you know, the fundamental problem came from the, not just the, the execution of the program, but the decision itself, the motivations itself, which was that ultimately NASA made the case to the stakeholders, primarily in this case, the White House, uh, and, and it's what's called the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, the, the budgeteers that approve expenditures by the federal government. Mm -hmm. NASA made the case to them and then they kind of walked away from, or they never really followed through at a high level. It was never a huge, important priority for them. So they kind of, they won the, the argument, but then never really captured the attention going forward. And then all of these promises that NASA had made about the value of doing something like a space shuttle were left to be done with little oversight or attention. And mm -hmm. as soon as the program got into trouble, started becoming very difficult to to do all of these things that they claimed they could do. Right. And it, it did not solve that existential threat that Apollo did. Right. Um, as a, as a point of geopolitical uh, feat, right. As a geopolitical. Uh, uh, well, Apollo was an exogenous event. Right. It, it, Apollo was created by, you know, to address, particularly at the, at the core of it, at its genesis, uh, an event that was ha an epical event that was happening outside of the U.S., literally itself, right, in, in the Soviet Union with the first human into space and this perceived loss. And then within the context of the Cold War, Apollo solved a clear problem, whereas the shuttle, 
to kind of put in your words here was, was creating a program to fit perceived problems or, or, or non-existent problems and then trying to get it across the goal in that case. And, and it's interesting in, in a way, John, uh, this paper is an argument for the original sin uh, you know, of the, <laughs> that the space shuttle carried forth with it that was unable to shake. That the motive, that the process, that the that by the process of how a program was created is actually carried through the program itself into the future for decades in this case, and ultimately, I mean, arguably, it was the core of some of the disasters that befell the program, and mm -hmm. you know, so just to to jump out here a, a little bit. So in addition to this complicated and belabored effort to sell the space shuttle to the White House and to various stakeholders within the government, the design of the space shuttle was constantly changing at this point. This is, and we should, this is 19, this is John writing in 1986 about events that happened in, in 1970, 71, and 72. Uh, and 72 is when Nixon approved formally the space shuttle development with the first flight, not then until 1981. And the, the design originally was for a fully reusable space plane and uh, rapidly reusable, right? These are all things that we're used mm -hmm. to hearing now through, through what SpaceX is doing, but this is this first wild concept at the time. But the design kept changing in this early period, not because of what, and this is, I think, the, the concept, of, again, of this original political sin or, or policy sin that, that John's identifying, not because of the needs of the program itself, but because of the cost limits being imposed on it by, in a sense, an arbitrary cost limit by the, the Office of Management and Budget. Right. And so, and then there's a couple, I mean, you can add, what, what else was driving shuttle design decisions at this point, according to this paper? Well, I mean, I think what's, what's really clear here too, is the political implications, 1970, 1971, 1972, President Nixon is going into a reelection year. Um, there's a whole outlining in this paper of the political considerations of federal programs um, in policymaking at the time in 1970 to 1972. And I think in there, it even says that NASA has such an outsized impact on the, based on its proportion of the federal budget, its impact on the politics in the regions that they operate. And so there's the political considerations there's the industry, you know, uh, considerations as well at a time of, uh, trying to revitalize the aerospace industry, 19, late 1960s, sort of following on after Apollo had ended. Um, and then there's the sort of the, the, the thing that's happening in the background with the military considerations, right? In that this is still the height of the cold war. And one of the, one of the conclusions of the paper being that the thing that convinced Nixon wasn't the size of the payload bay or the capabilities of, of uh, what things it could get into orbit. It was that this would put humans in space for longer, which is the ultimate goal of, at that time, both of the major superpowers. And that this continues the U.S. on that trend following Apollo, following the victory of planting the flag on the moon, that you that the United States could continue to lead in 
manned space flight, crewed space flight. Well, and, but also I think that the national security, not just that, so the, the symbolism aspect, but then this mm-hmm. nas- this perceived national security value, like again, that, that was, I think, what drove the size of the shuttle payload bay that the, or the, the shape of the shuttle itself as this delta wing is that it had to have this high cross-sectional ability to like rapidly take off, turn around and come back. These considerations in this paper were presented as, oh, the, the, the DOD would say, oh yeah, that, that sounds nice to have. Sure. We would. You know, that that sounds useful, but then never really seriously considered it or needed it beyond just a few people. So the, the design of the shuttle, in addition to the points that you raise as a political value, political tool for Nixon's reelection, as a, uh, a means to continue human spaceflight in an affordable way, was also being designed for this perception of national security without the full endorsement. And again, I think that's where this idea of nice to have, but it's solving a problem that they don't really face. And the paper mm-hmm. says here, the, the military was happy with what is the Titan three booster that it was using at the time. I believe the, mm-hmm. the rocket that launched uh, Voyagers and, and Viking into space or it was Viking at the Titan four booster it, Titan three certainly for Voyagers. And they didn't reach out to NASA needing a shuttle. So NASA came to them saying, Hey, would this be useful for you? But then NASA never reevaluated that commitment but then ironically, at the very end, that was one of those deciding factors for Nixon is that these perceived national security benefits could also be a value to the United States. And so it's, it's this interesting argument, too, where this such an epical decision for something that then ultimately ran, you know, the 10 years ish development time plus 30 years, 40 years, basically, came down to convincing Nixon on this broad kind of uh, hard to define quality of we need we can't pull back from human spaceflight and this national security benefit that never fully appeared material in the long run. Yeah. Well, what I find really interesting too, is at no point is Congress considered. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. Outside of maybe some of that, the, the, the politics, right. Of, well, we want to make sure there's jobs and districts. Um, there's not a, it is seriously, the shuttle came down to the decision of Richard M. Nixon. Right. It came down to him saying, yes, I want to do this and not even getting into the specifications. Right. um, Of what the shuttle would look like, what it would be capable of, what the development time should be, what the cost cap is per year. Um, It really is just Nixon gave it the thumbs up Mm -hmm. and it was then off to NASA to try to answer for all of these uh promises that things that made. it had yeah. all these promises right that it it had it had it had made to the department of defense and to the uh, uh to the office of management and budget and yeah well yep, it, to omb as well yeah that's a good point and i think it really highlights maybe just a different era of american politics too i mean because this is richard nixon republican uh president with a overwhelmingly i think democratic house and senate at this mm-hmm. time and uh, generally more functional process-wise kind of a politics, less polarized uh, polarized time uh, of American politics. I, I think uh, epitomized by this idea, one of the highlights that you mentioned earlier in terms of jobs were in Southern California, then and now a major aerospace center, but of California being a swing state for the Republican president, which mm-hmm. now is almost unimaginable in terms of the, the local politics there. And 
Exactly. That's interesting too. I never really thought about that. Congress just didn't seem super interested. And I wonder if that was this Nixon again is portrayed in this as almost seeing the space shuttle as again, feeding into this, the symbolism of human spaceflight. Not only is it valuable for this external U S projection of power, but Nixon saw astronauts as being the, you know, your, your so-called right stuff about this ideal of American citizenry mixed with this technological futurist, you know, kind of look down the line. And they, they note here that the supersonic transport was this big concept that had been canceled by Congress uh, early in the 1970s and was a, this kind of heartbreaking could have been project because it was too expensive. And this general attitude of, of retrenchment on technological development and the space shuttle is seen as the symbol pushing back against that. But again, and interesting though, that Congress does not really seem all that interested beyond this. And I wonder if that's a reflection of that malaise that was developing at the time towards technological progress. I think so. And it's mentioned um, in here that some of the uh, concern was of a the pushing back of technological progress, right, from the general public. And that's maybe in part why they saw this, NASA saw the space shuttle as, well, we need to get this done now, because if we lose the momentum post-Apollo, mm -hmm. that we are not going to be able to um, maintain crude space flight. I mean, looking to the 60s and, and, and then the 1970s, uh, an explosion in robotic space exploration. Obviously, we have the 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 you know the Apollo missions, but then Apollo Soyuz in 1975, really high profile events um, that have downstream uh, implications, both when it comes to technology spinoffs and jobs and districts, but also um, in terms of shaping the view of the United States in space, right? Um, but then at the same time. Right. This decision all came down to one person at the end of the day. <laughs> That's a classic space in the myth of presidential leadership. There's a whole book on this, uh, this idea. Mm -hmm. I, it really carried through with, with John F. Kennedy, right? That space things. And, and, and I think I'd say if, maybe infected is too strong of a word, but has embedded itself in the psyche of space advocates for decades that if only the president stood up and made this Kennedy-like commitment to some space effort, going back to the moon, going to Mars, you know, going to Titan, you name it, then mm -hmm. we would see the results, the benefits of it. And you could, it almost then became the singular goal. It's like, we just need to convince that one person. But I think what John's paper is showing here is that you can win that argument with that one person, but still not, you're still going to fail in your out in your goals because you haven't gotten the full buy-in or, or at the end of the day, you're just, you're just not capable of addressing a true national need. And, and again, this idea that at the end of the paper, that the shuttle for all the things that it has done well. And I think that's worth mentioning here is that this is a separation between the space shuttle as a, a amazing piece of engineering that did a lot of amazing things from the actual goals lined out at the beginning but that you, John says it, even though they won the president's a, approval, the program did not get a national commitment. And I, I want to mm -hmm. focus on that a little bit, because what does a national commitment mean? And there you go. There's your lack of Congress maybe playing into this. 
willing to fund it. But also national commitment. You had people in Nixon's own White House at the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. They're the ones driving down the cost of the space shuttle. They were skeptics the entire time saying, you got to make this cheaper. You got to make the, as I should say, you got to make the co- the development cost cheaper. And so as a consequence, NASA started shifting and changing its all development from a fully reusable two-stage rocket to this strange assembly of usable, reusable, rubber, reusable, <laughs> yeah. with dispensable <laughs> fuel tank and recoverable uh, side boosters. But the fundamental design being driven by this co- cost caps at this lower level of White House bureaucracy, completely independent of, of Nixon. And examples mm-hmm. of Jim Fletcher, the NASA administrator, being turned away and not being allowed to talk to Nixon and Nixon not knowing what his own staff were doing, like this whole fundamental kind of comical Veep-like breakdown of communication happening within the House itself, indicative of this lack of national commitment. And it's so this idea then you can, and I think then we saw as a consequence, this idea that you win the president's support, you then get what you want. We saw this then continue to play out like this in the future. You got Reagan to call out a space station in the 1984 uh, State of the Union. And then it, mm-hmm. this kind of the same story with the station after that. You had James uh, George H.W. Bush do a whole push around space exploration SCI. initiative. Yeah, mm-hmm. in 1989. And he gave a great speech about how great this is. And the money did not show up. George W. Bush did something similar in 2004. Obama even kind of got nudged into doing (laughs) something along those lines in 2009 after the end of uh, Constellation. Every time this happens, you can get the, but the president ultimately is just going to be distracted by all the immediate insane things you have to deal with as being president. And NASA isn't a problem they want to ever have to solve. NASA should be a nice, a good thing that helps them look good. But you, it takes this bigger uh, solution. So it, there seems to be this fundamental contradiction, though, then to me at the end, where it's like, okay, how do you get this national commitment? Well, you need to solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. But then by doing so, you've compromised your vision and, and ability to deliver on that so much that you will never succeed in them at the end. And so is there this inherent contradiction? Can, absent some massive external shock, can a representative democracy create efficient engineering <laughs> for major space projects. I don't know. Do we have good examples well, of that? I mean, it, it clearly shows that there needs to be a maybe better management of those stakeholder groups, right? You, you, this paper clearly shows you can't go forward and expect a policy success despite the success, ultimate success of shuttle right, of individual shuttle missions, that you can't go on without input from the public, right? But then at the same time, you can't solely be based on, you can't be basing engineering decisions on rule by committee, Mm -hmm. right? By decisions that are made by people who are not experts in engineering, ultimately, at the end of the day, the thing, solving a political problem doesn't also solve an engineering one, right? Yeah, it almost creates them. It creates them, absolutely, yeah. um, and creates budgetary hurdles later on, right? I mean, this paper was written May 1986, or was published in May of 1986, at a time when the future of shuttle was uncertain. Um, the future of, at the time, space station freedom was 
completely in limbo. And um, the future of human spaceflight hadn't, uh, was completely unclear. Mm-hmm. It was complete uncertainty. Um, not to mention, also happening at the same time, similar track, uh, robotic space exploration, yeah. something that we at the Planetary Society care a lot about, um, had also taken a nosedive. And I mean, since uh, since 1980, there were two planetary science missions mm-hmm. that launched on shuttle, but in the latter that was, part that of was the even decade. after this paper was published. Those were both in '89, right. as Magellan yeah. and uh, uh, what was the Galileo? Actual? Galileo, of course, yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, they had the big 30, fallow period. Thirty-four. Well, and that was another uh, item brought up in this paper was that the science community itself was very much against the shuttle. I like to. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Jack, but I. I feel like I like the first real introduction to a maybe a mature view of of space was when I first read about that people hated the space shuttle in the space community. <laughs> I was I was like this naive young young I was like 28 or something at the time but I was getting into this for the first time and I read Bruce Murray's uh, founder of the Planetary Society, Bruce Murray's book, Journey into Space. And he just rips into the space shuttle as being expensive, slow, Mm -hmm. uh, taking money away from science, uh, backlogging all of launch, because we haven't really touched on it yet, but space shuttle for a while was mandated as the single launch vehicle for the entire U.S. national security and civilian space programs which it clearly had a hard time keeping up with that demand. And so you had mm-hmm. things like Galileo wait years and, you know, and suffer serious consequences um, as a result. But reading that, you know, when I was a kid, you know, you're younger than me, but I, you know, as a kid of the eighties, I guess as a kid <laughs> of the nineties, you just, you watch space shuttle launches. It's the space shuttle. Right, that right was to, just the thing. You, yeah. The Lego sets the around the space shuttle. The thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just what it was. And so I was like, oh, yeah, how cool is Space Shuttle? That's neat. <laughs> and to see that people really, I mean, like Bruce Murray, maybe is extreme. He had a white hot, <laughs> passionate <laughs> dislike for the program was seriously eye opening for me. And I think reading this history about how this was cobbled together and for what reasons, and, and again, you see the price that science did pay. However, then you get this whole flip side that I think is really interesting too. This paper, again, written in 86, prior to the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble Space Telescope is launched by the shuttle designed to fit into that big old payload bay that NASA really did not need. That was the more expensive and, and <laughs> as a consequence, more, you know, those all those design decisions. But the Cadillac options. Yeah, but that then had to trade off all these reusability and cost and benefits of operation for. But then you get the Hubble Space Telescope out of it. And anything smaller, you just don't have as, literally you just can't have as big of a primary mirror. Uh, you don't get as, you know, much of a visibility. You don't get as much of an access to the to the early cosmos from it. This is where the story complicates for me. Where is a policy... It, by whose policy do we say something is a failure? And by who and and who at the who when they were making the decisions were really establishing the, the goals at the end of the day. So like we're I was thinking about this. NASA wanted to build a space station right after Apollo. 
they they wanted to have a space shuttle to build a space station. They got the space shuttle and then it took them another 30 years and they built a space station out of it. And now we have a space station. In that sense, if we didn't have a shuttle, I don't think we'd have a space station right now. So in some ways, in this really extreme long view, building the capability ultimately got you a lot of stuff. And and how how seriously do we take those arguments at the beginning that are made? And for what reasons? I think that's an open question to me for, from reading this paper. Well, I think too, and you, you touch on a thought that I've been having, is in the long view, maybe the answer to that question was the space shuttle a policy failure? The answer might be partly no, right? Mm-hmm. I think if you read this article, it reads as the answer is yeah, a resounding yes. It is an absolute policy failure based on the expectations set by NASA to OMB, to the Congress, to the Department of Defense, that that this is this this program does not uh, pass muster. But yeah, looking at that long view, we have a station. We had shuttle until 2010. Um, it was generally partially reusable. Um, and maybe part of it runs into that problem of, of that. I think we run into a lot of times speaking as a space advocate, um, speaking with space advocates is, you know, I want, I have a vision for my space program and I want it now. Right. And it says, well, by the, you know, it, I think the, the original plan was by 1990, between 1980 and 1990, there was going to be 600 launches of space shuttle. And that just, that never happened. We got over 130. Um, 135. And by that, by that metric, right, we, it, it was a failure, but it also achieved these major milestones as well. And so trying to have the answer be maybe it's kind of a failure, kind of not a failure. It got us things. It did inspire you and inspired me seeing shuttle launches uh, to become space advocates. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it did succeed in 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 building a, a national program that uh, promoted uh, American values, that promoted American excellence in space. And it's notable that the Soviet Union, after uh, uh, the U.S. started investing in a space shuttle, the Soviet Union also started investing in a right. space shuttle. The Burin. Um, yeah. Never, never flew. Well, it flew once, um, just without people on it. It flew with an automated. <laughs> we'll be right back with the rest of our space policy edition of Planetary Radio after this short break. Greetings, Bill Nye here. What a year it's been at the Planetary Society. From advocating for missions that matter, to funding new technology, to grants for planetary research and biology and space, to sharing the wonder of space exploration with the world. You made it all happen. Many of the great scientific missions we've dreamed of are happening, and it's thanks to your support. But we can't stop now because tomorrow's discoveries must begin today. With your help, we can keep our work going strong into 2024 and continue to explore worlds, find life, and defend Earth. Plus, when you make a gift today, your gift will be matched up to $100,000 thanks to a special matching gift challenge from a generous Planetary Society member. Your year-end contribution, especially when doubled, will go far to help launch us into all the exciting opportunities tomorrow will bring. Visit planetary.org slash planetary fund. 
Thank you. So is it fair? And, and maybe, <laughs> maybe we're giving a lot of uh, generous interpretations because we like space, but because I mean, part of it is what you're saying is sure. They, I mean, I was saying this to you, like sure they had their reasons at the beginning and sure they didn't pan out and probably weren't even realistic in the first place, but look at all this other cool stuff it did. It's like, well, right. Sure. I mean, yeah, that's great. I'm glad it did a lot of cool stuff, but why, why not say the cool stuff at the beginning and you know, why make all these other promises? And that's where, that, where I think it's almost like the people you have to convince. And this is what's so strange in a way about government programs. Like once they start rolling, particularly big ones like, like shuttle is that the, it became clear pretty early on that the shuttle was not going to fly 50 times a year. I mean, before, I mean, we're talking way before the shuttle launch, right? They, they ran into all this. Like, I mean, we're talking mid 1972. They were yeah, thinking right. it was like, this gonna isn't going to happen. Times this is not going to be the cost effective. Like it was all those things that, you know, all those challenges that ultimately faced started to become clear pretty early on, mm-hmm. but they didn't stop it. And all the kind of these non-tangibles about human access to space maybe national security stuff, something, something. And the variety of opportunities that it provided in terms of big telescopes or space stations ultimately carried it through. So it was never really held to these standards during development, right? Right. And so that's where it becomes, but then is that, is that a healthy way to run uh, multi-billion dollar programs. I don't know. Well, it's cause it's, it's the, the, the group of people you have to convince aren't the ones you have to, who have to deal with it. And I think that's the other point this paper makes is that the people who made this decision knew this is going to be, won't be operational till the 1980s. And you would just, you're making these broad commitments. So how can you have a national commitment even? How do you have that as an expectation? If you're talking 10, 20, 30 years down the line. That seems like a really high bar to cross at the same time. Well, I mean, time. you're talking about about multiple presidential administrations, yeah. entire arrangements of Congress mm-hmm. later. Making that same national commitment is very hard, right? We don't live in a, a, a system that handles long-term planning very well. Right. And we've seen that since the beginning of the, the space program. And I think back to your earlier point, a lot of space advocates might default to saying, well, we just need a Kennedy moment, mm-hmm. right? We just need that, uh, the, 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 the Rice University speech for Mars exploration or for, you know, the return to the moon. And that's just not how that can happen. It's not even really how it happened. Yeah. Right. right? It wasn't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It, because Kennedy was not president <laughs> for much longer after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became, you know, the whole, I mean, we can delve into the history of Apollo too, right? Of like, how do, how do major space programs like this space systems, right? It's not just one mission. This is, was supposed to be between 130 and 600 missions, um, how do you get to that point where you're also solving problems, right? That are legitimate problems. I'll call them legitimate problems, 
proposed by the scientific community or proposed by the national security community or proposed by the um, human spaceflight community, the exploration community, like whichever community you're trying to represent. Um, and something I've been thinking about is, is what is NASA, what was NASA's job in 1971? Was NASA's job to solve problems, to, to take input from the outside and solve problems, or was it their job to sell the president on a new vision for human spaceflight? Mm -hmm. And it clearly was the latter, at least the, what they perceived their job being was the latter because there was nothing pushing them in another direction. Well, because they were created to solve a problem that they then solved. And then they're like, right. okay, now what? <laughs> we've, we've landed on and then it's not fair to to hold them to you know it's of course like okay we have this giant system and bureaucracy now bureaucracies are really good at sustaining themselves and it it's not necessarily a pejorative description of a bureaucracy it's just of all the people in it like they're self-interested in, in continuing their rules and existence and capabilities and it is an, is an interesting question about what was NASA's job. And, and that's kind of what I was thinking about, again, reading this paper in terms of whose policies failed. Because NASA, again, mm -hmm. you, the through line through to this, and you mentioned this post-Apollo era, that this original pitch to the Nixon White House uh, through, uh, uh, was it Spiro Agnew, who was the vice president on the Space Council, was this massive Apollo-like expenditure, continued Apollo-like expenditure to do a space shuttle station lunar base in Mars by 1986 or something, this wild, insane, totally awesome, you know, I guess now fictionalized in <laughs> uh, for all mankind uh, TV show, but this idea that they would keep this up and running and uh, John's whole book on Nixon era and the Nixon space doctrine that basically defines modern space flight is that no NASA, you're not special. You no longer get special consideration. Your job is to continue to exist among this milieu of other government agencies fighting for your share of the pie. And in that sense, it's their responsibility to make the arguments they can within the bounds of decency, <laughs> you know, and to like, not outright lies, but I mean, just how do we pitch ourselves as being relevant? And there was, I think, a, a crisis of identity at NASA after Apollo about what do we do? And, you know, I think right. there was a, for a while, they're like, uh, does NASA solve like the, the um, energy crisis that was happening? Does NASA solve, you know, uh, you know, you know, we have all these smart people and other things like, do they solve whatever crisis that's befalling the world at the time? But at the end of the day, it, it's probably fair to let them say, okay, we can try to create something that is broadly useful in order to secure funding for this bigger thing that we hold that we think is valuable that doesn't have the same oh, this is the classic i get every discussion of mine always now uh digs down to the foundation of uh, real and acceptable reasons for space flight right and like <laughs> at the end of the day the real reason for the shuttle was to continue this you know human presence in space and great national symbolism and so forth and but they had to find all these so-called acceptable reasons of cost savings and national security utility and so forth and so on that then they could never execute on so that i i tend to give nasa a break at the same time i acknowledge i'm a very sympathetic person <laughs> to <laughs> to this outcome and the question is what what would the alternative be what would have because I do think it's important to emphasize here in this paper that 
whatever promises NASA made, they did with this idea that they then would have presidential support to commit to this big ambitious project of a reusable shuttle. And what happened was after making these promises, after getting the buy-in, they just get chipped away at by the Office of Management Budget saying, you have to go below this total cost. You, you must not spend more than this for no reason beyond that was what was convenient for the administration. This is what we're allotting you. Yeah. It's like, right. you get this much and you can do it cheaper. How? Well, it's your job to figure that out. I know you can do it cheaper. It's like, okay, then you make all these sacrifices, among which is, ironically, increasing the total cost of the lifetime of the mission because the operational costs tend to be super, super high instead of spending the money early on. Howard McCurdy dives into this in a in a later paper um, on, a, on a similar topic that I found really interesting. But this trade-off between not wanting to give the resources to do it right and then being upset that it didn't happen right, is it really then NASA's fault? Like where does, you know, the, you, you look for, in a sense, how do you endure in a system that is designed to be somewhat maddening like this, as you said, like not great right. at making these long-term commitments in the first place. And when NASA itself is facing, <clears throat> when NASA itself is facing an existential crisis, mm -hmm. right? Of why are we here? Yeah. To solve the crises, other crises, <laughs> a crisis about crises. Um, part of it is, well, we have NASA today, right? Do we have NASA today as 0.48? percent of the federal budget is that a high watermark compared to the direction it could have gone post apollo without convincing president nixon that they needed to move forward with shuttle if without shuttle was there a path forward for nasa to maintain uh its brand its uh direction and i think its independence too um, could we have seen a, a, an I love alternate histories. Could we have seen a situation where NASA then falls into or, or gets separated out into well the national security components or get absorbed into Department of Defense and the national prestige components get lumped in with Department of State and then the NSF, scientific yeah. components get yeah it gets put into NSF or some new agency um, and then you have a disparate space program that's split between five agencies um, and you have no central authority and maybe it's governed by a space council. Maybe that's an alternative mm -hmm. um, at the time, but looking post Apollo, it was, well, they needed to not just prove what they should be doing next, but prove their existence, right. As a national good, taking the Nixon doctrine to its fullest extent, like it's not just the congressional justification for keeping an agency, an age or uh, keeping the budget the same as the previous fiscal year, but it's keeping the agency in and of itself. Is it worth, especially in those formative years of NASA, is it worth keeping it as an agency? And I think, I mean, as a space advocate, I'm a little biased. I think the answer is yes. I think having a centralized space agency like NASA is a positive thing. But at the time, 1972, 1971, OMB clearly was not a fan of the immense expenditures that had preceded it, that had preceded uh, in the in the in the preceding decade for Apollo, um, and I think that opposition 
to a concerted national effort um, could could have ended NASA as we think about it today and mm. could have changed the course of U.S. presence in space if Richard Nixon didn't think it was a positive thing to continue to have humans in yeah. space. Yeah, I mean, how much is, I mean, that's the interesting question, right? What do you lose by not having humans in space? And on some level, very little in a practical sense. You learn less about what it's like to have humans in space. <laughs> this is like essentially it. <laughs> But it does carry, you know, it, I do feel, and I think it'd be an interesting argument to make it in detail at some point that it it is your loss leader into all this other space activities that you then have to find these backfilled justifications of scientific, you know, uh, exploration and other aspects of it that make it see, you know, again, the, the so-called acceptable reasons that help keep it this high profile politically interesting, you know, it supported activity. And yeah, like losing that, I think it definitely would have fit into that seventies era malaise attitude, right. Of, of retrenchment and regression, particularly in technology and symbolic that, you know, we would just stop doing that or maybe do it so infrequently, you know, we just keep making, I don't know, Saturn one B boosters or something like that. And hmm. maybe the Russian space program is, is kind of an interesting Core, you know, maybe that's what it would have looked like, where it was kind of the shell of its former glory, obsessed with its past, you know, minimally active for kind of what its core things that it does, but not an innovator. And basically only sends humans into space every now and then. You know, it, there's the whole, then you have this whole military, as you said, this was a separate kind of military component, which, which is much more active. The last, the last well, I will also say the the military component is huge in convincing Nixon. Yeah, and even you know the 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 laundry list of capabilities that shuttle would have uh, to promote, uh, or, or I guess military capabilities for shuttle. One of them is capture, containment, and disarmament of unf unfriendly spacecraft. Right. Uh, shuttle, I mean, we live in a world today where, I mean, even anti-satellite testing is, is generally frowned upon. Um, but in 1972, it was reasonable to think, well, maybe if the Cold War went hot, it's going to include combat in space. And that was a reasonable expectation because it was so completely wide open what that future, uh, future state might look like. In have space. you ever seen the Russian movie Salyut 7 about the, uh, uh, it's kind of their equivalent of Apollo 13 movie. It's like an adventure mm -hmm. movie to save that space station. And I think it's in the in mid early eighties. Um, there's a subplot that is entirely made up. <laughs> I'll just emphasize entirely made <laughs> up. This, one of the tensions in the movie is that if the Russians don't save the space station Salyut 7, that the U S is going to launch a, a shuttle and steal it and like pluck it. So that's like the tension of the movies. Like we got to do this now or else the U S is going to steal this uh, with their space shuttle to your exam. And I think they pulled that plot point entirely out of this OMB. Probably. Report. Yeah. That is <laughs> that's a, no, no, yeah. Who doesn't love reading these OMB uh, reports about this? Um, any other aspects of this paper that really stood out to you uh, in terms of, I mean, at the end of the day, maybe we should say, do you, do you buy the argument that John is making here? I buy the argument. 
I mean, one, John's a very persuasive writer, yeah. right? And I think well sourced, well researched. Um, and I, I buy that in 1986, in May of 1986, mm -hmm. you could have deemed the shuttle a policy failure. However, to an earlier point, I think the fact that we still have a space agency and the shuttle lasted as long as it did is a policy success, because I think you can discount the arguments that NASA had to make to OMB in order to prove its own existence and the continued use of outer space and continued uh, advancement of capabilities in outer space. Yeah. At the cost of, I think, as we discussed, there being a, a dearth of, of uh, planetary science, space, space science missions in the 1980s, as a result of shuttle being the sole uh, platform uh, launch vehicle um, for NASA, um, which coincidentally wouldn't have created if, if we didn't have the shuttle and we stuck with the Titan three. Uh, potentially we would have had more planetary science missions and we wouldn't have had the planetary society <laughs> right in this alternate history, but would yeah, we also we still have NASA? Yeah. Um, so I, I think in, in that long, long view, I mean, I think we, we still have a space program and the shuttle continued to run, uh, for almost three decades or two, a little over two decades after this paper was published. I think that is a success. And regardless of what points or arguments that NASA had to make in 1971 and early 1972 to convince Richard Nixon that we should move forward with the shuttle, I think ultimately the shuttle helped prove the existence, helped be it's sort of a case study in why we need a space program to remain competitive, to be innovative, to be pushing the boundaries of what humanity is capable of. Um, and we would not have the world that we have today if it weren't for shuttle, despite these early policy failings. Yeah. That's an interesting take. I like that. I, my feel, uh, if I had to summarize this, I think I'll emphasize John is a great and clear writer, and it is a pleasure to read papers like this versus the really, really dry ones, which can't exist. Um, <laughs> I think, again, it just kind of comes down to whose policies apply here. And, and I, I think we'll take at face value that NASA was not doing this maliciously. It like, was not misrepresenting. It's like it had all the best intentions to say it could be a cost-effective single launch vehicle for the whole U.S. needs, and it was going to be this transformative thing. I think that was the intent. NASA also had the policy goal of building a space station and doing all this other stuff in space. And in that sense, I think, it, yeah, it, it, we'll give this, it was 1986, so that hadn't happened yet. And if you just, you, it, it kind of again depends what policies you're applying here and which ones have value and or which ones are, are the most important to you. Like in the end of the day, it was not a cost-effective uh, machine to operate, but it kind of didn't matter because we ran it for 30 years. Like it didn't stop it from happening, right? It's just, it's, it's expensive. Was there an opportunity cost? Probably. But as you know, and we've talked about before, sometimes that money, if it doesn't go to that one program, it just doesn't come to NASA at all. It doesn't, it doesn't right. by definition, take money from some other NASA project. 
hard to say. That's a really hard uh, one to say exactly where that money would have gone somewhere else, but it's not a guarantee. And we've, we've seen that with other projects. Right. And the, but the paper does make an interesting pivot in the middle. And I think that's what to me is like the, the point that I, I dwell on a bit is that I buy, and I think John makes a great argument that the, these policy goals that he selects, it did not fulfill and ended up never fulfilling. Um, particularly, particularly the really ill-advised idea to make it the single launch vehicle of the entire nation. It's a military and civilian needs. But pivoting to this idea of national commitment, I think is less, is harder to defend. I think it isn't as well defended in the, in the scope of this paper, this idea that you need to have this national commitment, uh, to make it a policy success. And that did not, and that's why it did not happen. And I think national commitments are really, I mean, I think you've heard us discussing this. They're somewhat ill-defined. Uh, the, they're hard to endure by definition, but by the, just the design of our system. And it's not even clear exactly what they mean. I think you, it's, you can see it with Apollo. It had its national, I think, it, and the base maybe just comes out at the end of the day, it's just money. And it's, it's the difference between rhetoric and, and dollars because rhetoric is free and dollars you only get to spend once. And, but at the same time, you can't just summon a national commitment. National commitments, and, and this would be an interesting, a historian can email me and yell at me if this is completely wrong or, or Jack, you have a degree <laughs> in political science, you can yell at me if this is wrong. But national commitments to me occur because of external events and, and not internal ones necessarily. Like some, something has to happen that then, and then a national commitments in response to. It's hard to just create a national commitment and absent in a sense, some massive thing that is kind of unpredictable NASA couldn't just summon one of those to create the space shuttle. And so I think it's a standard, I mean, I get it. It's certainly nice to have a national commitment, but I think maybe you're lucky to get one of those a century, which seems to be what our running pace is at the moment with, with Apollo. <laughs> uh, so that would be the area. I mean, despite multiple attempts yeah, right. <laughs> to create one, right? Not just in space, but I mean, you have the cancer moonshot. Yeah. Right. Right. It's this national right. commitment that has its funding, but it's not this Apollo. I mean, it's called the cancer moonshot after Apollo, but not the same level of mm -hmm. commitment. You want to see a national right. commitment, have, look at the early days of COVID and see how quickly the U.S. spent $2 trillion when it wanted to. That's a national commitment. Yeah. You know, forever, whatever people's politics and COVID ended up being at the beginning, they couldn't pass that fast enough. Everyone got a thousand bucks or whatever, right? And they just suddenly spent mm -hmm. trillions of dollars. And that's what, I mean, that you can't just, the same arguments for why we should support, you know, investments in vaccines for massive diseases were the same before and after COVID existed. Um, but <laughs> only after it came, could that kind of money be spent and that national commitment exist? And so that's why I wonder, you, you really, it's a high standard to hold to something and learning and, and then the, the sausage being made in a democratic system becomes less, yeah, I, I, I'm more sympathetic to that than, than not having that follow through exist. Well, I mean, even the, I think a national commitment also is supposed to, I guess, in its 
vague definition is something that one person or one group of people decides is the national commitment. And there is a sustained, unfettered access to funding to meet that commitment. Yeah. As with COVID, spare no expense, mm -hmm. right? With Apollo, what it, whatever it costs, it's going to cost. But we're going to get this done. And you see that, that even with Nixon announcing that this is a national commitment on January the 5th, 1972, not three months later, OMB is already telling NASA how little of the next federal budget they're going mm -hmm. to get. Clearly not a national commitment if you can't spare. No, right. yeah, right. That, that's. <laughs> I think uh, John has a great line in this paper. Unrealistic expectations obviously lead to later policy failure. I think that that's an important part of this too. That is circled and underlined <laughs> in my copy of this. <laughs> so, Jack, I think uh, the question of this space shuttle program a policy failure, kinda. <laughs> kind of kind of, kind of question <laughs> kind of? Mark, as yeah, in the title like, yeah. emoticon <laughs> shruggy emoticon yes in some ways yes and in some ways uh no which i guess is the most satisfying answer for a policy discussion about as concrete <laughs> as one gets jack anything else you want to add uh about this paper that we read today no i think this was a a fantastic exercise i think being uh getting an opportunity to read, I think, a famous space policy article is a fair assessment for something that, that John wrote. Um, this has been a great exercise, um, and the lessons learned in this will help inform what we're working on today and uh, the next decade and the next national commitment there. that we have <laughs> from the space. God help us when that, <laughs> when that happens. Uh, Jack, thanks for being here. Jack Curley is our director of government relations in Washington, DC. If you, the listener, have an idea for a paper that you want us to talk about or are particularly excited about, please shoot either Jack or I an email or drop us a note in the Planetary Society's online community. Uh, we have that if you're a member, member uh, at community.planetary.org. Until then, our next episode will be the first Friday of January 2024. You can subscribe to this uh, podcast on all major podcast networks. If you like the show, please give us a review, a positive one <laughs> only, I request, if you have positive <laughs> things to say. Or you can sign up to our free monthly newsletter on space policy and politics, the space advocate at planetary.org slash space advocate. So Jack, uh, until next time, until next paper, uh, ad astra. Till next time, <laughs> ad astra. Ad astra.